Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Future in Space Hangout. I think this is our first one of the year, 2019. My name is Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space, and today we are going to be talking about uh, building super large space telescopes, not JWST. We'll be good. That We got that one covered. But the ones in the future, uh, the bigger ones, the large diameter objective ones, we're going to be talking about building them in space using robots, people, and all kinds of other stuff because it is an engineering problem that is going to be coming up soon. Now, this Hangout is a government shutdown um, affected Hangout. <laughs> My good friend and co-host, uh, Harley Thronson from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, is unable to attend this Hangout due to the government shutdown because he's prohibited from representing NASA while he is on furlough. So he will not be in here. However, Harley, from me to you, I miss you. I'm, my thoughts are with you. And I hope this thing gets over soon because I, you, we're, you're going to see the quality of our future in space, we hope, is not suffer too much. But Harley's not here. I just thought I'd tell you that right off the bat. Uh, I do have the Royal Canadian Mounted Police gravitational wave rubber ducky on hand, although it is not bookended by his. So this will be, uh, as I said, we will be suffering. So Harley, my thoughts are with you. And I, I know that, and you, even though he was on furlough, he still put together this hangout with our guests. So let me bring up uh, my, my panel here. While I don't have Harley, I do have my good friend, Dr. Alberto Conti from Ball Aerospace joining us again in Boulder, Colorado. Hi, Alberto. Welcome. Can you hear me? Oh, he's frozen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Okay. Because uh, he's looking down. Like so, Tony, I don't know if you can hear me. Oh, yeah. interesting. Oh, Sorry, my, my connection is going up and down. Wow, Sorry, that was Tony. weird. That was weird. So, you know what it did? It buffered your whole thing. You were sitting here like this for a long time, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> and then it all came out at once. Hi, Alberto. Welcome to welcome back. It's good to see you again, my friend. And he's frozen again. <laughs> Yeah, this is gonna be funny. All right. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Are you there? Are you there, Hart, Hart, Alberto? Okay. Well, all right. My guest today. That's not good. That's there he goes. Uh my guest today is uh Brad, Dr. Bradley Peterson. He is from Ohio State University and he's a uh, uh did you say a fellow at Space Telescope or are you uh, visiting astronomer? Visiting astronomer at Space Telescope Science Institute. Uh and uh, welcome Bradley. It's good to have you on our hangout and oop, he just he just went away. Uh Alberto did. So it's just the two of us now. So uh we are going like I said, we are uh, uh, before we get into our topic today, which I hope we will get your patience with because several of our guests had to uh had last minute cancellations and could not attend uh but we decided to, to go forth anyway and uh continue with this hi alberto are you there hi, uh, now i know he's got bandwidth in baller sorry aerospace. for some reason my wi-fi here it's uh enough today sorry oh you're on wi-fi oh, okay well next time yeah, yeah that's part of the sorry. problem okay yeah, you got to be on Ethernet. To but really... it worked perfectly last week, so or or two weeks ago, well, whatever I, we did. Okay, right? well, let's hope let's hope that uh, well, you're not like having a convention or anything there, are you? 
No. Okay. No. Or like a, not a convention, but a workshop. The government, something. I was going to say that the government is partially shut down. Not everybody in the government is shut down. That's a big distinction, but it affects uh, all of us, particularly because uh, NASA is part of that partial shutdown. Yeah, but you know what? As far as I'm concerned, if NASA shut down, it's may as well, it's the whole government because I, I, that's okay, all that matters okay, to me. I don't okay. really care. Uh, okay, I do okay. care. I, I, I'm kidding. I do care. But I, uh, yeah, NASA is big and uh, they do, but they, you know, the effect of the shutdown though is that, you know, the critical operations are still happening. The Hubble Space Telescope, for example, is still being operated. And as far as we know, the James Webb Space Telescope is still being built. Uh, it's yeah. still going forward at, at Northrop Grumman. So that's not right. being delayed anymore. Uh, and uh, so that's happening. So, it, but, you know, still it's, we, I, I feel like, you know, with our colleagues and friends at NASA, it's, it's a tough time. And I just, I just it, it is a very tough time for, uh, for lots of them. And so, uh, you know, we, we talk to them they are, most of them are personal friends. And so we really big shout out to them. Hopefully everything ends soon. So. Yeah, exactly. So Harley, our thoughts are with you and hurry back, man. Um, all right. Well, today's topic, we were going, we we're talking about constructing, uh, assembling large space telescopes, uh, using a lot of a variety of different means, whether it be robots, robotic spacecraft, whether it be human beings in space. And we had several other guests from different, there was a, I mean, maybe Bradley, you can give us a little bit of a background on this, but I think there was a workshop held where there's some work being done uh, at, on this topic as a whole, but you're interested primarily in how it affects the mission coming up that's being considered in the uh, next um, decadal survey, the astrophysics decadal survey. Uh, one of the missions there is Louvoir, which we've talked about several times on our Hangout before, and I think that's your primary interest. But is there, like, gen there's general work being done, right, by others? Uh, I think Gordon was involved in, in things like yes. that, correct? Yeah, basically we've been looking at, uh, uh, at concept studies for... Uh, assembling in space. Uh, the um, uh, my interest in this came from Louvoir, of course, but I was interested in how we're going to service a telescope that's in space. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, Louvoir is designed to go in an SLS Block II. Uh, it's the biggest telescope that you can fit into a Block II fairing. So, if we're talking about single launches, uh, this is the biggest telescope that you'll ever have in space. Uh, so we started thinking, though, when we started thinking about how we're going to service this, we can't build something this large and this expensive and then just abandon it after a decade because we've ran out of um, you know, station keeping fuel or something. Uh, that's just, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's just irresponsible. So we, ha we have to think about how are we going to service it. And now, once you start talking about servicing telescopes in space, it's not much of a leap to go to assembling them in space. Because uh, we have assembled things in space, like the International Space Station, so we have every reason to believe that if we have something that's reasonably well modularized, we should be able to turn it into an operational telescope. So um, that's a part of the reason that, that we were doing this. But then we started to ask ourselves a somewhat deeper question, um, that when we are looking at deployments of JWST and Louvoir, the, the, auto, uh, the autonomous deployments are complicated and risky. And we started to ask ourselves, well, what if, what if we actually had these go up as components and assembled them in space um, rather than had, had an autonomous deployment? Um, that could be less risky. Uh, we would have to only ruggedize components against launch stresses as, to opposed, to, as opposed to the entire observatory. 
Um, and you quickly start seeing that you could find a number of efficiencies that might make it cheaper or less risky or both for even smaller telescopes. So that's a, we want to know at what pr price point or what aperture telescope mm -hmm. does it pay to start thinking about assembly in space as opposed to auto deployment. And what do you think that might be? What is that? What is that aperture? Is that's there any a, well, consensus? That's, that's why we're doing the study right okay, now. So you're still doing that work. Well, let's, yeah. let's take a quick step back and talk a little bit about sure. JWST then. This is something both of you know about, and that can be our baseline from where we start. So JWST, when it's launched, will be the largest telescope actually the largest anything maybe next to the international <laughs> space station that we've ever put up in space right and this thing had to be engineered like uh talk about origami i mean the thing is folded in in all kinds of different ways to mm -hmm. get it to fit into an ariane 5 rocket mm -hmm. so and and alberto can you remind me what's the diameter of the objective so it's six and a half meters but actually to your point and to brad what brad was discussing the original uh, idea for JWST was not six and a half, was above eight, right? Which was then descoped because uh, indeed you have in a particular shroud for the Area M5 in this case, uh, you're going to have all these deployments that Brad was talking about. So uh, there's all of these uh, requirements that finally dictate exactly what you're going to come up with, right? right. So, so I think it, what Brad and the group was doing was trying to look at how do we break some of these paradigms what is the maximum size, if you will, you can fit in a, in a rocket that requires you to just say, maybe I should assemble it. And it sounds like, Alberto, with the current Ariane 5 technology, the biggest you could get was six and a half meters. Space, yes, that's right. that's right. Okay, so anything bigger. So what are then the big factors in limiting the telescope size? The The rocket, is the is it the biggest thing? It's uh, it's the diameter of the fairing yeah. that uh, is primarily the limiting thing. Uh, of course, you also run up against mass constraints as well. Uh, it's interesting to note that this JWST, uh, and Alberto, you can correct me if this is incorrect, but I, I believe that JWST is something like half of the weight of Hubble, despite the fact that it's a 6.5-meter telescope and Hubble is a 2.4-meter mm. telescope. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's 20 years of technology, right? That's right, right. there. Right. right, so the composites, the uh, uh, oh, I forgot the metal that was used, beryllium. Is that right? Yes, beryllium. That's beryllium. Right. Uh, yep. it, uh, well, beryllium is actually pretty heavy, but it is honeycomb, right? This the this yeah. technology allows you to remove ninety four percent of each of the masses of each of the segments, right? That's what's different, right? Yeah, yeah Hubble the, the, weighed uh, eleven tons. JWC is about six and a half. So wow, yeah, the beryllium actually had to do with you. The it's a material that has a low coefficient of thermal expansion <clears throat> uh, at forty Kelvin. So it retains its shape at 40 Kelvin. Yeah, and it's great as opposed to, you know, we, I mean, originally on JWST, just to give an idea, they did trace studies between beryllium and ultralight, uh, what's called ULE glass, basically. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they came up with beryllium because of all the properties and, you know, and uh, and it's great. But beryllium had the added pro problem that it was too heavy. And so, again, technology development on how you actually remove that mass that you don't need while, re while retaining stability, figure of merit, and so on and so forth. Okay. Hang on. I, I just remembered. I forgot to say that these hangouts are sponsored and endorsed by the American Astronautical Society. And I want to thank them for their support throughout the years on getting these hangouts to you. Uh, they are a, uh, they are interested that their membership is, is full of companies like Alberto's uh, Ball Aerospace and others that uh, contribute to aerospace and uh, uh, robotics and all astronautics of all different kinds. And so uh, they are the, the, and they are the ones who sponsored 
this hangout. And also, I am on, I am, I think I'm streaming on YouTube, Twitch, and Periscope. I'm not doing Facebook today, uh, but I do have all of the chats uh, conglomerated right here in front of me, and I'm already looking at the YouTube chat, which is the most active right now. There is also a Discord server for Deep Astronomy. If you look in the link in the description box, you will see that uh, link to also join us where that is. That chat is up 24-7, and it doesn't die. Thanks, Tony. I, I failed at being Harley. What's Harley that? Is the one I remember, I failed at being Harley because Harley is the one that reminds us. It, the well, we got to talking about the the shutdown, I and I, I forgot my my spiel. I had to say uh, who uh, the sponsor good. was. It's my fault, not yours. I sh- I I got all distracted by the by the shutdown talk and anyway, got uh, kind of yeah, bummed out. So thank you. Anyway, for, okay. Now, would you guys say so? Before we leave the topic of JWST, which has already been designed, we're pretty confident it's going to be deployed. That was me knocking on wood. Uh, And uh, we would you guys go so far as to say that based on current rocket technology, which is the big is the biggie here, JWST is about the biggest we could do or could do you think we could really do any bigger? You mean as a single launch as a single launch? Yeah, Yeah. I think this is the limit. Okay, so anything after this, just so you know, there have been studies that. You can, in principle, I think Lee Feinberg and others have done this at Goddard, um, you can, in principle, fit uh, a nine, probably a 9.2 meter in a fairing of Ariane. But that requires this. You can imagine, you know, JWST has these two wings. You can imagine another set of wings that fold again. But that has some additional requirement, which is, you know, you have to be able to test a 9.2 meter telescope in some chamber, which we don't have anymore. Goddard was a lot, I mean, chamber A was the largest we could have used. So there's other things that might make JWST indeed one of the largest we can launch. Yeah, let me, yeah, I should add on to that too, that that, uh, Louvar is studying a smaller (laughs) telescope, one that's about nine meters as an option. And that one is designed to go in a generic five meter fairing. Uh, But the trouble with current launch vehicles is we have a a mass problem. So uh, that can be solved by uh, a lot of light weighting, but light weighting increases cost. So uh, right now um, we're not in a great position, but uh, if the if the SLS goes forward, we'll be okay. Right. The S- okay. So the SLS is is something that you're. Well, let's get back to that one in just a sec. Sure. So with with yeah. so with the current um, so JWST will represent the largest uh, space telescope that we've that we've ever launched to date and but the decadal survey the national academy of sciences is is looking at all the future they look ahead and i think jwst was part of the 1990 decadal survey wasn't it so so the you're looking ahead to the next generation of space telescopes now immediately after jwst are things like w first which is not a big telescope it's not physically it doesn't have a big aperture. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but Louvoir, if it's selected as one of the missions, would host, as you say, an eight meter. They have two versions. They have an eight meter version that can go up in a standard fairing. But what's the other version that they have? The ambitious version is a 15 meter that would go up in an SLS block two. Okay. And that is substantially larger because... The astronomy and the science that we need to do requires it, right, guys? I mean, we JWST is going to do great. We're going to see the first stars, the first galaxies. But Louvoir, which stands for uh, uh, Large Ultraviolet Optical Infrared Surveyor. I was going to impress everybody, but I I was going to impress everybody, and then I totally (laughs) blanked out, so I blew it. It's all right. 
But so that's 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 a UV yeah. telescope, which is important. It's optical and infrared, all yeah. all the wavelengths, which is yeah. In other words, it sort of has a, a Hubble type coverage, right? Yes, and so but uh, but about a hundred to a thousand times as sensitive. Exactly because it's got this huge uh, this huge yeah. primary. I'm going to show this animation. This is the uh, yeah. Louvoir beauty shot that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just a, an animation of what the telescope will look like. I'm showing it now. Do you want to describe it to us, Brad, just a little bit? Uh, let me. I'm having a little trouble. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, it's fine. We can. Yeah, I can't see it right now, but I can describe uh, what you're seeing. It looks this, a lot like a really big JWST. Yes, it does. It has uh, it's uh, has segmented mirrors. Uh, it has two wings on each side uh, that fold back. Uh, it has a sunshade, uh, uh, which is very large, about, uh, uh, about, I think it's about half the size of a football field, football field yeah. uh, uh, but it's only three layers set, thick. Uh, it's really to stabilize the uh, thermal environment on the down sun side. It's not part of a cryogenic system like the sun shield on JWST. JWST is intended to passively cool to 40 Kelvin. We just need stability. So we will, in fact, put Louvoir behind three layers of uh, sunshade, and we will use heaters uh, to keep it at 265 Kelvin. One at a high enough temperature that water will condense on it. Okay. The, uh, you, so when you say stability, you mean thermal stability. You mean thermal no, stability. no yeah. large temperature swings. Exactly. Because um, those, those re result in mechanical distortions. Now, in the ambitious version, how many mirror segments are there? Oh gosh, I can't even remember. There's yeah, there's over, a bunch. There's over a hundred. Over a hundred, and JWC has how many? Uh, Alberto, eighteen. <laughs> so we're talking about quite a difference here. This but, is. But hold on a second. But we have known how to do this on yeah. the ground very well because you know if you think about TMT or GMT or things like that where we build large segments, right? Like I think TMT is going to have five hundred seventy-two segments, right? Right. So we know how to build those, you know. So we, I think it, the issue is not building them. The issue is you know qualifying for space. Yes, because we've done this uh, on the ground with Keck. And yeah. Keck, too, as yeah. well. Absolutely. And so the uh, – and I'm just going to show this uh, real quick because I can. Uh, the Hubble versus Louvoir animation here. This is an animation that shows first the Hubble Space Telescope. It has a soundtrack, too, if you can turn that on. Oh, I, no, I, I turned that off. I, <laughs> All right. Yeah. Do it, does it have sound? It's the – Yeah, it's, there's Hubble and then boom, like the Death Star above it. Or yeah, not the exactly. Death Star. The, it, it, it's Death Star. It, not the Death Star. What was it? What The, the Star it's Destroyer. The, Star Destroyer from, right, uh, yeah. from yeah. Uh, Star Wars. But the Wars. soundtrack is the Imperial March. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, have that. I don't have that queued up. But look at that difference. I mean, it is quite a, a, a huge. This telescope to me, I mean, I know there's four other, or three other really great projects being considered for the Decadal Survey. This one and the Exo Life, uh, the Exoplanet one, uh, yeah, are my two favorites. I think. And that's right. Yeah, this one, this one. So, so that's the side. That's to give you some scale, folks, of what we're talking about here. And it's going to fold and 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 all of this kind of stuff. Okay, so let's get. And you said, Brad, that this design, the ambitious one, not the eight meter one, which we nobody wants. We want the big one now. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll settle for an eight meter telescope. Well, I suppose, but yeah, yeah. I, I want the biggie. Uh, yeah, you're saying that it's all. yeah. You're the planning for Louvoir. I understand it's early yet. You can't go too far into this until you get selected as a project or as a 
as a priority. But what's going to be the way to do about this, go about this, getting this up? You said the SLS is involved. What are you guys thinking? Uh, we, you know, we've basically been instructed by NASA to assume that SLS will be available. Oh, they're telling us. you to use it. They're, yeah, that's what we. That's the assumption for the study. I see. Uh, okay. But you know, we we are also doing this uh, uh, separate study. It's a separate group of people uh, looking at assembling telescopes, and you know, that'll be a nice uh, backup if it turns out that the SLS is not going to be available. Then then we're looking at assembly in space. Okay. All right. Uh, so, what, what? I'm sorry. I was. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I was looking at a chat. You said that the, that if if it's not available, if what's not available, it will be. If the SLS is not available for Louvoir, okay, we could still build something the size of Louvoir uh, using in space assembly. But you're still not planning with SLS to just launch it in one shot, are you? Yes, we are. Oh, SLS is a, yeah. Oh, Again, I see. I misunderstood. We did have instructions from NASA on this. That uh, I asked. That was one of the first questions I asked uh, Paul Hertz, who's the director of the Astrophysics Division, when I was commissioned to do this. I said, "How many launches do I get?" And he he was very quiet for a moment and said, "One, but you one. can assume it's an SLS." Right. Does that scare you at all? Would you rather have it several launches? You know, uh, either is challenging. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. Yeah, I mean, one thing about an, an SLS launch is going to be uh, the single launch is going to be very expensive. Uh, it's uh, and you also you have the whole mission then riding on one launch. Um, so that's right. If you're not doing in space assembly, uh, you know, launch uh, loss of launch vehicle is uh, loss of mission. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a pretty big deal. Um, Plus, there are other part, you know, there are, there are other sort of uh, industries coming up, you know, the SpaceX's of the world and the Blue Origins of the world that might have large fairings. You know, SpaceX has the BFR, Blue Origins is going to have something, the new Glenn is probably seven meter fairing. Mm-hmm. So you could, in principle, think about amortizing launches using different uh, kind of providers if you. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the medium launch vehicles are, uh, there's a market for those and the, the market is likely to have prices uh, driven down. And so it, we may reach a point where we'll say, you know, in-space assembly is just going to be so much cheaper. Right. But what we still need is we still need infrastructure in space to do that assembly. So that's Perfect. the one thing that we haven't costed out yet. Okay. Is, is Louvoir going to go to L2? Yes. Okay. Um, before I get to specific questions that people are asking on the chat, the I know that we had other guests and they couldn't make it. So I'm, I'm and I don't mean to put you guys on the spot. If you don't know, just say it's no biggie. Um, but the so we're, let's look a little bit further past. Now we there are like high. It was like the high definition space telescope. It's been renamed into something else HCST, now. Yeah, um, these are way way down. Twenty forty twenty. I don't know how far down. But Actually, are... Louvoir is a direct descendant of the High Definition Space Telescope. Is it okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what the the bigger ones? What do you know about? I mean, I've seen I you know things like star shades that are enormous and and gigantic and and are probably going to have to be origamied up into space. Um, the so I guess my question is the the ones do the far future ones they're going to have to be done in several launches right or do you if think over, if it's over 15 meters it's it's got there is no other way 
There's no other way after 15 meters. Okay. Yes. And we already talked a little bit about the cost point. We don't know where it, it the the break even point is for breaking it up into into smaller launches yet. Right. But I mean, as, as Brad said, I think it depends on two things, right? One is how, why you, can you launch? How big can you launch? How, how big of a segment, let's say, of a telescope that yeah. you want to fill in space you want to launch? And then the second thing is, you know, when does it when does it make sense from a cost perspective, you actually to to do that and how many launches you need, right? So you have to do all this stuff. And then, as Brad pointed out, there's no infrastructure right now right. where you can, you know, okay, so you can launch pieces of a large telescope, then then what, right? Right. So, uh, so well, there's a lot of discussion about gateways, <laughs> and you know, I mean, you know, at some point, yeah. you, know, you can imagine, I can imagine, I can envision taking the core uh, twelve segments of James Webb Space Telescope, which is a very well-defined piece of hardware, if you will, and launching multiple of those that can then be assembled in space to build a larger telescope, for example, right? But then, yeah. and, and I believe we could actually even do that right now. But the problem is, there's no infrastructure that can. Uh, you know, can acquire these pieces and then put them together either robotically or with humans, right? Right, and, that's and that, a, that's, yeah, that's a big one. Did you want to add well, something a, to that, Brad? Go ahead. Yeah, that's a that's a, really the key issue, and I think one of the things that got me to thinking, you know, we can really do this, was when NASA started talking about this deep space gateway that was going to be orbiting the moon. The great thing about this is the delta V to go from cislunar space. Go to sun earth l2 is tens of meters per second it's, right you know it's practically nothing so uh uh you, you know th there you've got your you've got a very natural place to assemble and service uh as you're orbiting the moon and when you're done you can do all your testing and then you once it's t uh, tested and verified then you send it on its way to sun earth l2 I'm so glad you brought that up, Brad, because I don't know what it is about that gateway, but every time I talk about it on these hangouts, there's all these angry <laughs> comments coming that, that they just don't, that people just don't like it. I don't. And to me, no. that's a great, absolutely perfect use for something like this, folks. I mean, I get it. You want to go to the moon. You want to go to Mars. Don't screw around with this gateway business. But I actually think it's a good idea. I still think it's a good idea because it's a, it is a, it is a good way to work out a lot of the technologies that we're going to need, not just go to the moon and Mars and all that stuff, but think about the space telescopes in L2 that we're going to need to put there. We, this would be, would you say the Delta V was tens of meters, uh, tens of meters per second. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that, that's, that's a, that, that, that to me, that by itself, nothing else makes it worth it uh, to, to, to explore this, this and gateway to me, idea. That's yeah. And to me, that's equivalent of building a telescope someplace and then, moving it to its uh, operational place right with very little uh, energy and that's uh, it's gonna make a lot of sense yeah. right you can you know you can use a, a an ion engine too so that the accelerations are very gentle and uh, you don't have the whole telescope uh ruggedized against launch stresses it can actually be pretty fragile yeah the universe is the limit folks Yep. That's right. the universe is the limit <laughs> all right well you do have to survive launch the segments have to survive this, launch. yes they do right but that's a that's different than the entire structure. Absolutely, very very different, very different from lots of yeah. And astronauts have to survive launch too, so yeah. <laughs> if they put it yes. together. <laughs> so getting to your getting to your point on the infrastructure, this probably would have been a good question for Gordon, uh, the guest that couldn't make it. He works from a he works for a company, by the way, folks called Robots in Space LLC. Okay, so <laughs> chances are, and I have we have had uh, hangouts before where Harley and I have talked about 
companies who's working on the technology to like go up and fix satellites in earth orbit grab they're they're developing the technology now to launch a robot go to a satellite grab onto it fix it replace a component or something and then leave it up or maybe push it up on a higher orbit that's a thing now that's a business opportunity that, that corporations are actually looking at seriously and so it isn't a big stretch then to go from that kind of technology to build it, to building robots that are, are maybe permanently stationed up there, maybe in a gateway and can build things <laughs> and can build things uh, up there already in space. Yeah. Um, do you guys know, I mean, I know this isn't your expertise, but can you comment on any of this? Is this stuff being built now? I'm sure it is. Some of these yeah. infrastructure I have a, issues. I can tell a little story. Okay. A I love stories. Story. It's, a, it's a quick story, a quick personal story. I gave a talk once about James Webb, and I was talking about future telescopes and Louvoir and uh, larger telescopes. And I said, uh, if we are able to build telescopes in space, we're robots. And as I was saying that, uh, if a 15-year-old from the audience raised its, uh, his hand, and he said, what do you mean, if? I've been building a quadcopter since I was 12. Of course, we're going to do this, right? And that changed my whole posture, which is like, why do we even think that if, you know, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a matter of when. And I think uh, the infrastructure is just going to exist. It's just a matter of when. It's not a matter of if. I don't think it's a question of technology or innovation or any. I just think it's a, it's a matter of, of political will, if it's a government doing it, or a, making a good business case. If it's a if it's a business doing it, if, a, if but space a is hard, right? I mean, space is hard. Sure, it is. But the environment well, is non forgiving. But right? think of the profit you could make repairing communication satellites instead of having. First of all, you're saving other corporations millions and millions of dollars by fixing something that's already up there instead of launching an entirely new satellite. So the business case is there for the repair part of it. Now imagine you can make a business case for building things up there. And I think you could. I think you could make that case. And I think the issue really isn't ever going to be, can we do it? Technically, Yes, we could do this, but it's always a political question. Can we politically pay for it and all that crap? Right. There's, a, there's another aspect to this as well regarding the infrastructure, and th this really comes down to uh, to money. And the question is, does the NASA science mission directorate have enough resources to be able Great. to do a service mission without basically gutting everything else that it does? Yeah. And uh, for that reason, I think it's important that this has to be an agency priority and the way that you make it an agency priority is you bring in human exploration because you can solve a number of different problems by using uh, humans to assemble or to, to supervise robotic assembly. So you're saying as part of the infrastructure plan for this kind of situation, we humans should be a big component. I, I think they should. And, and for the practical reason that we really need agency wide support to make this happen, uh, this is the sort of thing I think that the manned program would like to do because it's a uh, it's very high visibility mm -hmm. uh, uh, and it's good good use of astronauts because well one of the things we've learned in Hubble repair missions is that uh, sometimes flexibility is required and things aren't always the way that we imagine that they're going to be and you have to sort of make it up as you go along and humans are much better at doing that than robots robots of course have other virtues you know they're infinitely patient. Um, they don't care too much about uh, how hot or how cold it is. Right. Uh, so, and they're capable of high precision motions. So, I would think that some 
uh, combination of these things where, where you make use of the better qualities of both types of servicing. That's a good point. So, uh, Alberto, what do you think? You want you? Want no, I was gonna, I was going to say one other thing. So, astronomy. I'm I'm going to be a little biased here because of my profession, I guess. Me but too. astronomy is a little. We all do, yeah. Okay. But um, <laughs> so astronomy requires. So I think from a commercial standpoint, you're right. I think things are going to happen. Repairing satellites and everything. And when it comes to astronomy, though, and astronomical astronomical applications, there's some cleanliness requirements, right? Yeah. That you don't think immediately about, right? The environment, for example, around the station is pretty dirty. There are like fuels and things. And so you have to be a little careful when you want, you don't want, you know, this dirt, quote unquote, to go on your uh, pristine mirrors that you spent eight years polishing, right? Well, you know, it's, it's, if you're using the gateway as an assembly point, uh, you're not likely to actually be in immediate proximity to it. Yeah. Correct. Uh, yeah, Correct. yeah. But just uh, as uh, a safety measure primarily, but also for contamination reasons. And you're certainly not going to have the deep space gateway uh, actually dock with something, say, the size of Louvoir. Correct. Because uh, the, the mass differences, uh, <laughs> uh, you'd have the tail wagging the dog is what you'd have going on. <laughs> the, Whoa, yeah. I can't hold on to this thing. Yeah, but, but the yeah. analogy, I think uh, Marty Frederick used to work with me at uh, Northrop. I had this analogy, which I thought was really good, which is the moment humanity to discover elevators is that when we build, we started building very tall buildings, right? And the elevator is just an enabler. So we need those. We need that infrastructure that is ready for us to be able to build these things, right? So right. we need the elevator in the sky. How's that? Agreed. Yeah. And I think you know that you. That's an important point. And unfortunately, our guests aren't here to to comment on that part of the the discussion. But that is key: is to be able to set this infrastructure up for building these telescopes or whatever so it is. Care, you know, I don't care space. if it's a gateway or something else or whatever comes up. But that infrastructure has to exist for us to be able to build these large structures that we can probably. We can build on Earth, but then we can launch them, right? <laughs> okay, let me ask a couple questions here that people are leaving in the in the chat. First of all, Hans Milling is leaving a comment that says says that the Starship, which was formerly the BFR, can uh, take huge things, which is true. Uh, and, that, and I think you you mentioned that too, Alberto. Yeah. So uh, Neil, you wants to know if if Louvoir uh, could compare to a few small linked terrestrial planet finder scopes. Let's say we, we put some together via interferometry or whatever. Well, maybe we should comment on what the science of Louvoir is supposed to be, first of all. Uh, maybe we should talk about that. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, Science always wants bigger apertures. You just need the larger collecting area, and you'd like to uh, uh, have diffraction-limited optics because when you do those two things, your sensitivity to point source detection goes like the diameter of the fourth power. So even a small increase in your aperture has a big increase in uh, your ability to detect faint things. So um, in the case of Louvoir, what we want to be able to do is look directly image and take spectra of exoplanets in the habitable zones of nearby stars. So the, you need your larger aperture so that you can uh, you can observe the habitable zone of stars which are increasingly further away so that you have a large sample. So that's, that's what drives Louvoir to the, to the 15 meter sort of size because at that size, you uh, expect to detect uh, and observe enough exoplanets that if you find no traces of habitability, then you have, uh, then you have ruled out habitability in the local neighborhood at the 95% confidence level. If you can only detect one or two systems and you don't find anything, a negative detection tells you nothing at all. That's right. 
That's so that's point. that's why we want a telescope in the 15 meter range, because then we can do statistics that mean something if we don't find anything. If we don't find anything, 95 percent confidence, it's not there. Right. And Brett and I would like to know in our lifetime, we're getting older. <laughs> You're getting older. Oh, I know. I'm getting very old. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, but the issue is this. I mean, you can know, you know, with a telescope like that, you would be able to address that question within our lifetime. Okay. Well, and, and, and because of the collecting area and because of the diffraction limit uh, and the way the inner working angle works out for planet, exoplanet detection, uh, this is not something that's easily done with interferometers. It's much better done with large collecting area. Right. That's a good point. Condor Boss has a good question. He, he's asking, I wonder what the practical limit on the size of a space telescope, space-based telescope would be. Um, what would be a practical limit and what would be the thing limiting it? Things like tensile strength of the cradle uh, could be a big factor. How big do you think space telescopes could get? Just your well, opinion. The, the, well, the telescope that we're looking at right now uh, for in-space assembly, uh, and we're doing this as an engineering exercise. We wanted to make it bigger than Louvoir so that it was uh, clear that this was not Louvoir that we are redesigning. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, uh, we wanted something that we could scale down so that we could see where the price points are, price breaks are uh, for various price points. And the size that we're looking at is 20 meters. And if you look at a 20 meter telescope, we found that uh, in, we've done, again, uh, concept studies on this. We can break it into about 70 segments and it would require something like 10 to 12 launches. Uh, so 20 meter, what we found in studying the 20 meters is we have identified no showstoppers, which really amazed me. We have had basically uh, each, each time we've go, had a meeting, we sort of broken into two or three teams and had them go do a preliminary design and come back tomorrow. And, uh, the, you know, showstoppers have not been identified. There wasn't anything they say, well, no, this is prohibited. We can't do this. So we know it can go to at least 20 meters. Now, when you get beyond that, then you start having, having to worry about things like the strength of materials uh, and control systems and control surfaces. Uh, I don't know what the limiting factor would be. I, I, that's, uh, I haven't gotten that optimistic yet that I've run up against a problem. Right. But in principle, I guess if you can modularize things, uh, right, and, and then figure out a way to have an infrastructure to assemble them, uh, the limit is probably, you know, I don't know. I don't see material limits, actually. You know. Yeah, well, you know, the, on the ground, the, they were, uh, the uh, Europeans were looking at building an extremely large telescope. And uh, once they got above about well, 50 meters or so, uh, then you run into some problems uh, that simply cannot be solved. One is wind loading. Yeah, uh, that's it. That's yeah. Right. yeah. And I think it's also, at some point, you sort of exceed the um, size of the isoplanetic patch in the atmosphere so that you can no longer do adaptive optics. Adaptive optics yeah. So you've just got a big light bucket. Yep. Right. Okay. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, ultimately you can think about uh, uh, if, if segmented is indeed the way to go, uh, then you can build, each segment can be uh, a unit and you can assemble thousands of units or something. Maybe they're independent. Maybe you, you, you put them together in some way or something. I don't know, right? So the limiting space is very different than the ground, as Brad mentioned, right? I, you know, it's probably simply going to come down to cost. Right, right, yeah, which is the variable we're not talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the so. number of launches, all of that. I mean, you're yeah, looking, yeah, yeah. so all of that adds quite a bit to the cost. Another thing I think is a limiting factor, maybe not to building the telescopes, 
but maybe to using them. And that is, and that is the fuel. I mean, I mean, if I'm, Correct me if I'm wrong, Alberto, but isn't so JWST? I think's mission is five years nominally with a goal of ten, right? Yeah, ten or plus. Correct. At ten, and so and a limiting factor, of course, is the propellant. Right. That's on There's there. A, but JWST is the propellant, not to, just to control the attitude, right? Because the because he acts like a solar sail, so he wants to kind of uh, tip, if you will, right, in one direction. So you need to control the attitude, and you can manage the attitude with gyroscope and and uh, and reaction wheels up to a point. And, the, and after that, you have to dump some momentum and you fire the thrusters. And so how well you manage the momentum dictates basically your lifetime, including, you know, your initial orbit and so on and so forth, right? But, right. Uh, but yes, you know, so there's a limiting factor, which is fuel in managing your... I mean, it killed Kepler. Orbit. That's why Kepler's not still taking data. So... Right. Uh, and the other thing is uh, L2 is a, uh, it's an unstable orbit. So there's a certain amount of uh, uh, station keeping that is required. Always required. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Another another limiting factor I see in a lot of these telescopes, if we, I mean, I, I, I know that building them, if you're going to spend all this money and time building gigantic, ginormous telescopes, using them for the longest amount of time is a good thing. I think detectors are another thing that's going to limit the life oh, of these missions yes. because they degrade. Um, they, yeah, they do. They, exposure to cosmic rays causes them to uh, degrade over time. Yep, and so those. But that's are, why you make uh, serviceable the telescopes, right? So you exactly. swap things in and out. That's try. That, uh, do yeah. you think NASA? I know, right? Are, is Lou, well, let me just ask you, Brad. Is Louvoir under any constraints to make Louvoir serviceable in any way? Oh. Well, actually, uh, there is a, a law that says that we must make it serviceable. That's what I wanted to hear. Yeah, I right. wanted, to, I wanted and, you to say yeah, that. Yeah, and whether or not it gets serviced is a separate question. But we are, <laughs> we, we, we're, we're making it serviceable. It's, all the instruments are designed to be uh, easily swapped out. Uh, and I think basically uh, everything will be replaceable except the optical uh, telescope assembly itself. Easily swapped out by whom? Uh, robots or astronauts. Okay. okay, so you're doing it. And if it's at L2, robots. If we can bring it back, uh, then possibly humans as well. So you don't think so, we're going to have human capability out there anytime soon? I, I think it's a dangerous place to go because unless you want to burn up an enormous amount of fuel uh, decelerating when you arrive there, you know, you're going to have to take you on a trajectory that takes a long time to get there. Yeah, I should mention real quick that the L2 point is a million and a half kilometers away from Earth. It, right. It's a point that follows the Earth around its orbit around the sun, and yeah. it's a good way to see both the moon and the Earth. We should indeed ask John Gronsfeld if he would be willing to uh, astronaut extraordinaire, if he would be willing to. I, I would love to have it. We need I to have, definitely get him. I have already asked astronauts how oh, they yeah. feel about going to Sun Earth L2, and they're yeah, baby, when do we go? Exactly. Those are the people you want flying. <laughs> I agree. I, I don't agree. think astronauts are never going to say no, are they? If you say, yeah, do you exactly. want to go? They're, they're not going to let you finish the sentence. They're going to say, yeah, I'll go. Where are we going? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, they're, they're never going to say no. Uh, I don't yeah. think anyway. Um, okay. So con let's see here. Uh, Galaxy is commenting. I still prefer the telescopes of the future and discoveries like life and direct imaging of planets in the future. Hans Milling uh, is commenting, 
Um, if you assemble in space with no gravity, the size can be as much as you can afford, I guess. And that's what we were just saying. It right. comes down to money, really. Uh, only at some point it will turn into a giant solar sail and get blown away by the sun. <laughs> that's a good point, too. Um, yeah, that's a good point, too. Exactly. That, that goes back to your point about fuel and, and yeah, right. control and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah and momentum management. Neil yeah, Yu momentum. wants to know if we have any idea how much is being spent on robotic space assembly by NASA or by anybody, I guess. Do we have any idea? Oh. It's not really, we're, unfortunately, we don't have our guests that specialized in that, I'm afraid. Yeah, I don't know, actually. Yeah, I haven't. Nothing. Yeah, not enough. Um, uh, Larry Keyes, is the driver at 15 meters for the, it's for the, it's for the Louvre, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Hans Milling, if Bush had not canceled NASA's Mars program, we would we would have humans on Mars by now. But they are back on track, and so was SpaceX. So hopefully in my lifetime, I will get to see humans on Mars. You guys have a comment on that? Do you think we're going to see them anytime soon on Mars? We you know, we still need, need to learn how to live in deep space. When you get beyond the magnetosphere, yeah, uh, it gets dangerous. Another reason um, for the gateway, in my opinion. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, I agree. So you can learn. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm. I, we did a series. You guys don't know this. We did a series of hangouts a couple of years ago with Arnold Nikogosian from George Mason University, who yeah, literally wrote the textbook on space physiology. And I, I came away from that series of hangouts. He, you know, he, he, he was very articulate in showing and describing all of the problems of human beings in space. And then I came away going, I'm not so sure we can live out there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, we're going to have to really build some amazing protection for people to be able to make this work. It's, you know, it's, it's a very tough environment. And, and there, I think if you're going to Mars, you're going to have to introduce artificial gravity at some point. You're going to have to use a centrifuge because we're finding that, that uh, people, the physiology changes if you're weightless for like six months. Uh, I asked one of my friends who was on the space station for six months, what was it like coming back? And he said it was like it was like coming back from a long stay in the hospital. He said it just took oh, him wow. a long time to uh, to readapt. Our bodies are and just it, not I mean, made for this. It, it no, is. a lot of things happen. You know, if, yeah. you know, he said that walking around became painful because he had no calluses on his feet anymore. Oh, you know? wow. Yeah, and you're used to in the space environment, you're wearing a T-shirt and shorts that just kind of float around you. And then you get back on Earth and you have these clothes which are hanging on you and dragging you down. Just things that you wouldn't expect. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah and and the, the muscles that you use for something like sitting. Well, you know, you exercise your large muscle groups uh, uh, while you're on the space station. But there are all these little muscles that atrophy, the ones you use for balance. And, yeah. uh, you know, so it's, uh, it can be kind of a miserable experience. And, and you know, it's, uh, you don't want people arriving at Mars after traveling for six months. And in that sort of shape. No, you don't. No. And, and that's, so, and, and that right there, Brad, is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't, I love space exploration. I want to do it, but I don't know, man. I just don't know. We may not make this. I mean, it's, there's a lot of, unless we, unless Ray Kurzweil is correct and we all just beam our personalities into a Android body, you know, I just, I just wonder about our, bio, our biological ability to do this, but I'm, I'm sure we'll solve it somehow with maybe with rotating artificial yeah. gravity right. or something. Or maybe. Yeah. So maybe oh that's yeah. I mean, come on. Everybody's yeah, seen I mean, 2001, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the Martian. And the Martian. Yeah. And the Martian. And, right? and the, you know, and the only reason they don't do that now is because it's so expensive. 
Okay. Yeah, because we haven't figured out exactly. So one of the other things that we, you know, that I think we should think about is also how you reduce that that entry cost to actually get off Earth because that's the biggest problem right now, right? So companies are trying to do it. NASA has been thinking about it for a long time, but that's the biggest yeah. uh, entry. Everybody's in 2001, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh. And, and, and I think we got Gordon joining. Is that yeah. you, Gordon? Yes. Hello. <laughs> yes. Hi. Hey, um, there he is, Gordon. Welcome. Here I am. I better late than never. Yeah, I apologize. That's, that's very true. So this is Gordon Rossler. He is from Robots in Space LLC. Welcome, Gordon, to our hangout. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, here's you came at actually a pretty good time. So right now, what we want to know is what is being done uh, in the realm of robotic space assembly. Uh, what's the state of the technology right now? Who is doing stuff to build robots to get us uh, to either assemble things in space or repair things in space? Uh, give us an overview, if you could. You bet. Uh, starting with the program that I led at DARPA for four years, which is called Robotic servicing of geosynchronous satellites, or RSGS. Uh, a spacecraft with two seven-degree-of-freedom robot arms on it. Uh, if primary missions don't include assembly, they include inspection and repair and upgrade, um, but it's perfectly capable of doing assembly, right? These arms are two and a half meters long. They can change their end effectors to adapt to, to different things. So what I've suggested uh, at several fora, including uh, military and NASA forums about space servicing, is that to test some of the ideas we have about assembling in space, that we send experiment packages in the 2020s up to RSGS, which will be in geosynchronous orbit, so that it can prove out in space some of the assembly concepts that are going on. I mean... Uh, understand that the telescope is not intended to be in geo, right? That's not the right place for it. Uh, but you'll have an operating robot out there, and it could certainly do those experiments. Um, NASA's Restore-L mission, mm -hmm. uh, which is a LEO mission, uh, has the same robot arms that RSGS does. So it could also be used. What's uh, RSGS? Do... Oh, sorry. That, that was the program that I led at DARPA, Robotic servicing of geosynchronous satellites. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, um, thought I said that. Okay. So, so both of those, both of those spacecraft have uh, uh, very capable, very precise manipulators. The, the end effector errors are typically on the order of a millimeter from where you wanted them to go. So they should certainly be capable, and, and they have the tool changing capability. So they should certainly be capable of doing uh, validation of assembly concepts in the case of restore L and Leo in the case of RSGS and geo uh, RSGS is a 15 year life spacecraft. Uh, RS, uh, restore L is a one year life uh, design. So you'd have to hurry up a little bit if you want to use restore L, but um, it never, the capability is there, right? So, so these are two platforms that, uh, um, will be on orbit, will be available for, for some, doing some of these tests. In terms of what's going on uh, in laboratories, uh, the two uh, leading on-orbit assembly laboratories at NASA, I think, are JPL and Langley. Uh, they've, they've done a lot of work in structures and in automation of assembly concepts and that sort of thing. Um, 
I'm trying to think if there's anything else I can point to in terms of, of near-term ongoing stuff. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on at university levels that are looking at, at various parts of this as well. Now, um, is this uh, one of the things we were discussing, and Alberto was making a point about needing before we start launching these uh, space telescopes that need to be assembled in space, we need the infrastructure. And one of the bits of the infrastructure I was trying to say was this ability to repair uh, satellites that are already in uh, orbit. And I is that the kind of thing Robots in Space is working on right now, or is it something else? Are you guys trying to make a business case for satellite repair? So... I'm leaving the business case for satellite repair to DARPA and SSL, who are the two partners doing robotic servicing of geosynchronous satellites, okay. RSGS. And I'm, I'm more tackling the question, what's next, right? And an assembly of these things is certainly part of that. Now, at the NASA, latest NASA meeting uh, that discussed the in-space assembled telescope, that was the one that was held at Langley, um, I made the point. I don't think that it's a good idea to make have this telescope be the first big thing that's assembled on orbit. I mean, I, I think that's kind of crazy. If I was, let's say, the, the science mission director and associate administrator or something, I would say, hey, if that's already out there and I can leverage it, that's that's a great a great idea. But if I have to develop all the robotics and all the techniques yeah, and agreed. that's that's a, a, a bridge too far. The budget will never support it. Exactly. Now yep. the good news. The good news is there are many commercial drivers to doing on-orbit assembly, and I'll tell you what what two of them are. One of them is just building great big antennas. Um, those those have a lot of value in delivering bandwidth, and the the hunger for bandwidth on Earth is not going down. Let me let me tell you. That. So uh, there's there's going to be a lot of a lot of desire for higher bandwidth going through satellites. Large antennas will be a piece of that. And people will figure out how to build those on orbit. I know of some companies that have put some money into figuring out how to do that. Um, the other commercial driver for on-orbit assembly is building large structures in geo that you can hang multiple payloads on and power them and point them in the right direction and that sort of thing. So today, if I wanted to send up a commercial communication satellite, let's say for television or data exchange or something like that, the program would be somewhere between 300 and 500 million dollars. You have you have to come up with that. Um, I, I know that the rule was we're not going to talk about cost, but just to motivate the idea that there is a driver for on-orbit assembly, if you had a platform where you could simply hang a payload. So you don't have to launch a completely integrated satellite, but only get a payload up there. You cut the capital expense down by a factor of two or a factor of three. So these are some commercial possibilities that are being looked at in on-orbit assembly. And perhaps the capabilities that are developed to do those can be leveraged for this telescope assembly. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And I love the idea of maybe not let's making our first uh, uh, assembly project you know, a, a, a 20 meter uh, space telescope. Maybe that's a good idea. <laughs> Maybe make it something smaller. Um, well, uh, so Brad was telling us about the 
uh, the requirement by law that Louvoir be designed to be repaired. Uh, do you know enough Service. about Louvoir to be able to, or uh, yeah, work, uh, worked yeah, on? Um, do you know enough about Louvoir to be able to say if the kinds of robotic technology that we have now would be up to that task of replacing components? First of all, going out to L2, replacing components and putting new ones in? Right. So I, you're making a distinction now between assembly and, and then sort of- Yes, I, I am. I'm, I've only got five minutes, so I've got to move way forward here. <laughs> okay. So, so in, ter- in terms of servicing, uh, you know, the, the, the primary things you'd want to do are refuel it so it can maintain its position longer, repair it if, if something breaks, and then, and then upgrade it, just like we put new instruments on Hubble and, and that sort of thing. Exactly. Those are, are within today's capabilities. And let me give you an example on a smaller scale. In 2007, DARPA flew an experiment called Orbital Express. And it replaced a battery module and a processor on its target satellite. And those both worked. Those replacements were done completely automated without human joysticking. So we know how to replace things and and repair is the first cousin of replacement. So I I don't think that the servicing is the big challenge. I think it's the assembly. Okay. All right. And uh, just real quick, I've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, Do do, our... Are are you thinking that robots can be the robotic uh, repair and place and all of the stuff we've been talking about would need a would require a human component to make this really successful or do you think we we could do without? Um, I, I I believe we can and should do without uh, because of the, I mean to be honest because of the expense of, of human space operations. Yeah. Okay. Um, if if we're unable to avoid that, I'm I'm afraid that the cost is going to again be a be a be a killer. Uh, have we talked about risk also? No, we have don't we care about that. No, we just we just want to do it. Yeah, we don't care about risk. Right. I mean, there there is risk to to basing a program on robotic assembly. There's also risk to folding up a telescope into a single robot and launching it and praying that it a doesn't have a launch failure and b yes, uh, I know, I deploys perfectly, right? Yeah, I'm praying for Ariane 5 uh, success here coming up in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. And I know just how you feel. Okay, guys, well, we're out of time, unfortunately. Everybody has to go uh, pretty promptly here at 4 o'clock Eastern time. Um, a- a- any final comments you guys want to make? A couple minutes. No? Let's go and make something extraordinary. We need to find life. Uh, we, need to, we can do this. Uh, let's service it. Let's uh, keep it for 50 years as opposed to the... Five to ten years when we have uh, typical telescopes running. Yeah. Well, these yeah these very large telescopes with their capabilities for examining exoplanets, we can answer the question: Are we alone in a meaningful way? And I think that's the most compelling science question that's ever been asked. And that's why I think that stakeholders like Congress and the American public will support it. All right. Well, that's a good way to end it. Um, I want to thank I would thank you guys so much for joining us in our hangout, uh, our Future in Space hangout. My guests today were Bradley Peterson from uh, oh, the Ohio State University. <laughs> <laughs> you're from you're from the Ohio State too, aren't you, yes. Alberto? Yeah, uh, I, I, yes. Brad was my professor. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't even from talk about Ohio that. State, yes, also, Gordon Ohio. Rossler from the uh, Robots in Space LLC. I want to thank you so much for taking time out to talk with us. We will be back next week where we'll be talking about something. I don't know. It depends a lot on the <laughs> government shutdown, guys. So anyway, thank you all so much for, for watching. And as always, keep looking up. <laughs>